In January of 2002, the Spotlight investigative team of the Boston Globe, America's oldest continually operating newspaper, published a series of articles exposing the sexual abuse of several minors by priests. The initial report regarding one father, John Gagan, entailed his long history of sexual perpetration against minors and the steps taken by the Archdiocese of Boston to keep Gagan's actions quiet in the larger community. It was discovered by the Spotlight team that Gagan had been moved around to numerous parishes and still allowed to serve as a priest as the accusations against him mounted. With a single story of one priest in their sights, the Spotlight team continued to dig, eventually uncovering a pattern of what seemed like systemic sexual abuse. Their investigations would lead them to 87 priests who, all accused of sexual abuse of minors, had their crimes covered up by the Archdiocese of Boston by being moved from parish to parish. While in the course of their investigation, the Spotlight team would contact many of the victims of this abuse and even uncover the facilities that the church used to try to rehabilitate these abusive priests, all in hopes of avoiding the scrutiny of law enforcement and the public. Through a series of challenges, including the 9-11 attacks, which placed the story on the back burner for a time, the Spotlight team continued to seek answers and follow the story, which continued to lead to higher and higher levels of church leadership, eventually landing in the hands of Cardinal Bernard Francis Law, who it seemed was made aware of the scandal as early as his appointment to the post in 1984. The Spotlight team was able to uncover a significant amount of information regarding Cardinal Law's failure to act against sexually abusive priests, including his full knowledge of the crimes over the course of two decades. After the full scope of Cardinal Law's inaction became public in 2002, he quietly resigned his position, yet remained a Cardinal in good standing until his death in Rome, Italy in 2017. It was the original story of priest John Gagan that most revealed Cardinal Law's ineptitude as it pertained to confronting child abuse in the church. In this single case, Cardinal Law helped cover up the rape of over 130 minors as Gagan was moved through six different parishes where he continued to have unsupervised contact with children. After the story broke, the Boston Globe became inundated with calls from victims of sexually predatory priests. Lawsuits began to mount, with the Archdiocese of Boston paying out $10 million to the victims of John Gagan alone. It later paid $85 million to 552 other victims of sexually predatory priests, eventually selling land that it owned in Boston to help pay for the damages. On August 23, 2003, and while in protective custody in a correctional institution in Shirley, Massachusetts, John Gagan was murdered by another inmate who stomped and strangled him to death in his cell. This episode is about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church.
and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. David, we made it to our season finale. Yes, we did. So our patrons on Patreon voted and they decided that sexual abuse in the Catholic Church would be our season for finale topic. So thank you to all our patrons for your input. And very exciting news, the runner-up topic, which was the murder of Shanda Scherer, will be our next Patreon-exclusive episode dropping during our season break. And we're going to have some other Patreon-exclusive content during that time, too. So we want to thank our patrons. We're in need of some new equipment and software, and all of the proceeds from Patreon are helping us to get that so we can continue to put out high-quality content. So thank you all so much. Yes, thank you very much. Okay, so on to our topic. Well, I think I've mentioned this in other episodes, but my first job as a psychologist was working with sexual offenders, doing both treatment and evaluations, which were primarily focused on risk assessments and recommendations for treatment and community supervision, which is also called containment. I actually worked in the field of sex offender treatment for 10 years before transferring to my current position doing court-ordered criminal evaluations. Now, while I still evaluate sex offenders as part of my job, it's no longer my main focus. But I actually found working in this area to be very rewarding, in the sense that I felt I was doing what I could to help prevent offenders from continuing to victimize others. But I will also say it was often very difficult work. I had to hear the details of some very disturbing crimes, and I worked with families and victims of offenders as well. I believe there is a reason sex offenses, especially those perpetrated against children, are so decried in our society. These are crimes that have the potential to impact victims in significant ways for the rest of their lives. So that's my background with this topic. But you know, David, it's kind of interesting. In all the years that I worked with sex offenders, both in the community and in prison, I don't think I ever worked with a Catholic priest. Huh, okay. I did work with other men who were in clergy or other leadership positions in other religious organizations, um, but not ever a Catholic priest. Now, some people might be inclined to say that this is maybe because priests either are not likely to be prosecuted or that if they are, they would receive treatment through the church. But neither of those are actually true. So while it was the case that many priests in the 1970s and 1980s, when this abuse was most rampant, were not prosecuted, that's actually not the case today. And when priests or other clergy are prosecuted, they are criminally charged by the state where the abuse occurred, generally speaking. So in Colorado, once a person is convicted of a sexual offense, there are many things that have to happen. The offender must undergo what's called a psychosexual evaluation, where their risk of reoffense is assessed, as are the individual's sexual arousal patterns, with the goal of developing treatment needs, both from a sex offense treatment perspective, as well as from a mental health perspective. Additionally, those offenders who are released into the community, either on probation or parole, have to follow numerous rules that are laid out by the state's Sex Offender Management Board, their probation or parole conditions, and the conditions of their treatment program. In Colorado, offenders are required to participate in treatment, register as sex offenders with law enforcement, submit to regular polygraph testing, 
and follow a host of other rules, such as having random visits by probation or parole officers to their home or job, having their internet monitored, abiding by curfews, and submitting to GPS tracking. So my point is that if a Catholic priest was prosecuted in Colorado, he would be subject to all of these requirements just like everybody else. I only worked for one agency in the Denver metro area, and there are several agencies doing this type of treatment just in this city alone, which to me is pretty sad that we need so many treatment places. Yeah, I can see that, definitely. But there were probably other agencies that were treating Catholic priests, just didn't happen in the one that I worked in. But I do think that my experience suggests that there are not loads and loads of priests who are being charged and convicted of sexual offenses. Well, I think that the whole basis of this was that it was kept away from law enforcement. Right. And that was that was before my time kind of working in this field. And I think since I've been in the field working as a psychologist, I think that the rules have really changed. But it's interesting because the research has actually shown that there aren't loads and loads of Catholic priests that are being accused of sexual offenses. It's actually been shown that Protestant clergy are accused of sexual offenses at a rate similar to or higher than Catholic priests. And David, I believe you have a lot more to say on that particular subject, so I'll let you address that. But what I really wanted to talk about in this episode is pedophilia, because I think that that's where people's minds kind of go when we're talking about this topic. I think that's the case, for sure. So, you know, this is a term that's thrown around a lot, and while it might have some more colloquial definitions, I wanted to discuss the actual clinical applications or clinical disorder. So if you'll remember, I talked a little bit about paraphilias and paraphilic disorders in our episode on the Ken and Barbie killers. As a refresher, a paraphilia is a sexual interest that is considered outside the norm, while paraphilic disorders are the conditions diagnosed when these abnormal sexual interests began leading to difficulties and distress or to harm. So pedophilia is a sexual interest in prepubescent children, and pedophilic disorder is the mental health disorder diagnosed when the person has acted on these desires or is experiencing distress related to having them. So it is possible that a person can have pedophilia but not qualify for a diagnosis of pedophilic disorder. For instance, if a person has sexual interest in prepubescent children but never acts on it and isn't particularly distressed by it, For a diagnosis of pedophilic disorder to be given, the individual has to have recurring fantasies, urges, or sexual behavior involving prepubescent children over a period of six months, where they've acted on these urges or experienced significant distress or life disruption related to these fantasies, urges, and or behaviors. Additionally, the individual must be at least 16 years old to be diagnosed with this disorder. People with pedophilic disorder may also have normal sexual interest in adults, which would be called a non-exclusive pedophilic disorder. Or they might only be sexually interested in prepubescent children, which would be called an exclusive pedophilic disorder. The non-exclusive type is actually more common, and it has a better prognosis from a treatment standpoint. People with pedophilic disorder can be exclusively attracted to male children, exclusively to female children, or attracted to both. Now, a lot of what people refer to as pedophilia is actually not pedophilia. 
So people assume that any offender who has sexual contact with a minor would be considered as having a pedophilic disorder. But as I mentioned, one of the criteria in the DSM is that the person be attracted to prepubescent children, meaning children that have no secondary sex characteristics or those traits that develop with the release of hormones during puberty. So, if an offender shows sexual interest in minors who have reached puberty, this is not considered pedophilia. Now, pedophilia would be considered a deviant sexual arousal pattern because it's abnormal for an adult to have sexual interest in children. Sexual interest in postpubescent minors is not considered a deviant arousal pattern because postpubescent minors more closely resemble adults physically than children. That being said, recurrent sexual fantasies, urges, and or behaviors of postpubescent minors that the person has acted on or causes distress or life disruption is still problematic. And in the case of a person acting on these fantasies or urges, it's also criminal. It can also result in a diagnosable mental health condition, which is called hebophilic disorder. It's actually not one of the specific paraphilic disorders listed in the DSM, but it's considered one of the quote-unquote other specified paraphilic disorders. So that means that many of the people who offend against minors actually fall into this category of hebophilia rather than pedophilia. So let's talk about what we know about pedophilic disorder. The DSM points out that the prevalence of this disorder in the community is unknown. And that makes a lot of sense to me. It's not like people who've not gotten in trouble for their interest in children are going to willingly come forward for treatment or research purposes. However, studies have suggested the highest possible prevalence of this disorder in the male population is between 3 and 5%. So that's a small percentage, right, David? Yeah, generally speaking. But that's still a significant number of people when we look at the population. Absolutely. But what about women? While there are women who have pedophilic disorder, it's really much rarer and less researched or well understood. So, as I mentioned, when people get convicted of sexual offenses, it's common for them to participate in a psychosexual evaluation where we assess sexual arousal or sexual interest. One of the main ways this is done is with an assessment called the penile plethysmograph, or PPG for short. This device measures tumescence, or the amount of blood flow to the penis, while the individual is exposed to different types of stimuli. It can help evaluators determine if an offender has a sexual interest in children or adults, and even if they have sexual arousal to violence, which would be an indication of sexual sadism. PPGs, as well as other methods for assessing sexual interest, have been around for many decades, and what has been found is that not all child molesters are pedophiles. In fact, it's estimated that approximately 40% of child molesters who abuse non-family members and approximately 25% of those who abuse family members, or what we would call incest offenders, are pedophiles. So what about the rest of them? It may be like I mentioned that they are offending against older children who are postpubescent, so those people would most likely be hebophiles. Or it could be because they are offending for reasons related to other motivations. What we do know is that sexual offenders who also have pedophilic disorder tend to have more victims by the time they are caught, and they also have a higher risk to offend again in the future. So it's definitely something a mental health professional would want to assess for. 
So how does this disorder or this deviant arousal pattern develop? The answer is we don't really know. While it used to be assumed that being the victim of sexual abuse as a child was a risk factor for later developing pedophilia, we now know that this is not the case. What we do know is that this sexual interest begins early, generally in adolescence, and it appears to be as rigid as normal arousal patterns to adults. It's also very resistant to change. So just as a person is unable to change their sexual orientation, the research suggests pedophiles are unable to change their arousal to children. More recent studies have looked at the neurobiological correlates in pedophiles. A few studies have found that pedophile child molesters showed better cognitive functioning than non-pedophile child molesters, which I thought was very interesting and unexpected. Yeah, why do you think that is? You know, I, I don't know. And, and really what we're talking about is a correlation. Right. So it's hard to say what it means, but it is just kind of interesting. The pedophiles also demonstrated better planning abilities and performance accuracy on cognitive tests. However, current neuroimaging studies have found functional changes in the areas of the brain associated with sexual functions in those who have a sexual interest in children. Other research suggests pedophilia might be associated with specific neurological dysfunctions. Some of these studies have shown frontal lobe deficits, and the frontal lobe is responsible for things like inhibition. And while these are neurobiological correlates, like I mentioned, they are just that, correlated. There's not been any gene or brain abnormality discovered that leads a person to develop pedophilia. We don't know if these brain changes cause sexual interest in children or if sexual interest in children cause these brain changes. Other theories suggest pedophilia is caused primarily by environmental factors, such as poor parenting, physical abuse, poor social and intimacy skills, etc. So while we don't know what causes pedophilia, it's probably some combination of biology and environment. So what do we do about this? As I mentioned, this arousal pattern is very resistant to change. We have no ways to make a pedophile no longer aroused to children, but we can teach them skills and techniques to learn how to manage this sexual interest so it's not as prominent and so people are less likely to act on their urges in the future. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the main treatment modality we use with sexual offenders. And as part of treatment, offenders learn to identify their offense cycle or spiral and the thinking errors that they've used to justify or minimize their behaviors. They're taught healthy intimacy skills, communication skills, and about healthy sexual behaviors. So David, have you ever heard that there's no cure for sex offenders or no cure for pedophiles? Yes. Yeah, I've heard that a lot too. And in the strictest sense of that word, this is true. But we cannot cure the vast majority of mental health disorders. That's just not the nature of the beast. We can help people learn to manage their symptoms, focus on their strengths, and learn healthier behaviors. As a result, mental health disorders that are being effectively managed are generally referred to as being in remission. Historically, this was a term that was most often associated with substance use disorders. So, David, you're probably very familiar with that term. Yeah, of course. Because, again, you know, substance abuse isn't anything that's cured per se, but rather effectively managed in such a way that it does not cause harm to that person's life. Right. 
So um, while this was historically applied to substance use disorders, with the DSM-5, we now have the ability to classify paraphilic disorders in the same way. And I think that does speak to the usefulness of treatment and that people with paraphilic disorders can get better in the sense that they can learn to not be controlled by their urges, not in the sense that they're quote unquote cured. It also indicates that people have to continue to manage their urges, fantasies, and behaviors for the rest of their lives. They don't just do treatment for a year and then not have to work on it anymore. Just as something can be in remission, it can reemerge. And this is the case with paraphilic disorders as well. In order to effectively manage pedophilic disorder, hebophilic disorder, or any of the paraphilic disorders, people must continue to work on them. Okay, so David, I discussed a lot of the clinical aspects of pedophilia. Right. But what do I think about what happened in the Catholic Church? First, I think so much of this could have been prevented if there had been credibility given to the victims and swift action taken against the offenders. Second, I don't believe the abuse here was any more prolific than it is in other religions or other settings. Unfortunately, people who want to offend against children will place themselves in positions where they have greater access to them. So it's actually estimated that 6% of teachers have committed sexual offenses against children. And we're all familiar with the sexual abuse that occurred in the Boy Scouts, right? And being in a clergy position gives people often unsupervised access to children. When you couple that with a culture where it's believed that clergy can do no wrong, it's problematic. What I will say is that while the church did a terrible job of addressing this in the 1970s, the 1980s, and even the 1990s, they have improved significantly. They're no longer tolerant of this behavior, and they now hold priests accountable. So David, I think you're going to talk a little bit about the charter. Right. A charter was developed in 2002 that outlines a specific process for dealing with clergy suspected of abusing children. And it's now required that they report any suspected abuse, no matter how long ago it occurred, to law enforcement. They also removed the accused from the ministry, and they have reporting procedures in place with victim advocates available to people who report abuse. They also have people outside of the church come in for regular audits to ensure the church is following all of these rules. And as a result, the rate of sexual abuse in the church has decreased significantly. So it's decreased from approximately 660 new cases in the Catholic Church each year in the 1970s to one new case per year since 2014. So that suggests that, that what they've put in place is really helping. So David, I know you did a lot of reading and a lot of research on this topic. And I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, sure. There was a ton of information about this topic. Child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church has obviously been a big topic for a while now. I remember going to see the comedian Carlos Mencia perform live once where he joked about being sexually abused by a priest stating, quote, well, that's what I get for wanting to be an altar boy. Carlos Mencia stated at the time that he joked around about it as a way to laugh rather than cry. I was not raised Catholic, but my whole dad's side of the family was, and there was definitely stories of priests who had at least attempted to molest kids in some way. I will start off by saying that for this topic, I learned a lot about this scandal that I did not know before. 
Jess, you and I watched the movie Spotlight with Michael Keaton a while back about the Boston Globe expose that was written that really exposed this story. Yeah, I remember. It's been a few years since we've watched it, but it was it was a really good movie. Very interesting. Yeah. The movie was a story about the determined reporters who went after this story, tracking down a number of clergy and former clergy who had moved around after being accused of sexually abusing children in Boston. If you haven't seen the movie, I would definitely recommend it, as it's one of Michael Keaton's best roles, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. But it follows what the reporters went through to expose the story of the local archdiocese in Boston, which, as I'm sure many of you are aware, is a very heavily Catholic city. So that expose is truly a story in itself, but today we really wanted to explore the topic in a much wider sense. Again, it seems that this has become commonplace, you know, to make jokes about priests molesting children in American culture, sometimes even by those who were raised Catholic and still consider themselves practicing. So the question is, how in the world did the Catholic Church get to this point? After the Boston Globe expose in 2002, the Catholic Church had to do something to at least appear that they were responding to this crisis. So here's how that went. In June of 2002, a consortium of Catholic bishops who generally meet to discuss business regarding the church met in Dallas. Responding to the Boston Globe expose, the bishops approved what was called the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People, which was a number of specific steps the Catholic Church would then take to address the problem of sexual abuse within their ranks. To help operationalize this charter, a committee called the National Review Board was formed. The National Review Board was assigned the task of getting a full picture of the extent of the problem within the church. To do this, the National Review Board hired the John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York, which is a very widely respected academic institution, to conduct what amounted to a research study whereby academic researchers, not church employees, would seek out hard data on the problem to include using the Catholic Church's actual records pertaining to priests who were accused of sexual abuse, information on victims, and settlements that resulted from these accusations. This was actually a very important step on behalf of the Catholic Church, since up until that time, priests and other church employees accused of sexual abuse and any settlements that resulted from this were kept within the church. Very rarely was law enforcement involved, which is one of the statistics that I'll get back to here in a few. So, to get a full picture of the problem, the John Jay School of Criminal Justice assembled a number of very proficient researchers and got to work. They looked specifically at sexual abuse cases between the years of 1950 and 2002, at first. I say first because a total of two different studies were conducted, the first entitled Nature and Scope Study, while the second looked at abuse cases between 1950 and 2010 and was called the Causes and Context Study. For this episode, I will be referring to the Causes and Context Study, which is the second one, as it has more information about the historical context of the abuse, but it also relies heavily on information from the first study. And of course, we'll have a link to the study on our website, but be forewarned, it's dense. And like I said, that's just one of the two. However, once I got into the research and the conclusions of the study, I was fascinated. It really debunks a lot of what I would call conventional knowledge about this scandal. So let's dive into some of the conclusions, shall we? Yes, that sounds very interesting. First and foremost... And the study throws this right out in front, is that there is no single identifiable cause for sexual abuse. The authors of the John Jay study claim that deviant behavior was on the rise in the 1960s and 70s in America in general, 
and that sexual abuse of minors within the church sort of followed suit with this. What most people don't know is that the abuse of children within the church peaked in the late 1970s and then dropped dramatically in the 1980s and has steadily dropped since that time. This is why so many publicized cases regarding sexual abuse that have come out are usually a minimum of 30 years old. They spend a lot of time discussing the decrease in the 80s in the study, so we'll come back to that. But the second biggest finding of the John Jay study was, now get this, that none of the priests who engaged in sexual abuse of minors were found to be any statistically different than any other priests in the church. So let me say that again. None of the sexual predators in the church were found to be any different based on psychosocial or developmental histories than the priests who did not abuse children. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So using this study as a guide, we can say that there is no way to determine who within the church is more susceptible to become a child abuser, basically, than anyone else. Okay, one of the things that the study comes out and states very clearly is that child sexual abuse is a historical problem as, like I mentioned before, it peaked in the late 1970s and then dropped drastically in the 1980s. What most people may not know is that as of today, sexual abuse within the Catholic Church is actually a very rare occurrence. According to the study, anyway. Well, and that was the statistic I found as well, where there's only one new allegation every year, basically. Exactly. I know that might not be very comforting for a lot of people, but in a purely statistical sense, this is certainly a step in the right direction and a hell of a lot better than it used to be. At least, and I will put this caveat on it, that is, if this study is to be taken as completely accurate. This does mean that the church does deserve some modicum of credit, however, for taking action against priests who were known to be sexual predators, even if they usually tried to avoid official channels such as law enforcement when dealing with these priests. And while some of this may be due to the church itself, the authors of the study go on to say that there were a number of changes during the 1980s that also led to a decline in victims, and that this included things like an increased knowledge in American society about child victimization and changes made to statutes that related to rape, sexual abuse, and the reporting of sexual abuse. Also, more research was being done into the causes of sexual abuse and into the treatment of sexual abusers. So there were a number of changes that contributed to this sudden decrease in sexual abuse in the 1980s. One other point that the study puts right out there from the beginning is the issue of celibacy, which is generally, and at least anecdotally, seen as one of the biggest causes of priests who abuse children. It seems logical. Priests supposedly live lives completely devoid of sexual contact, but people being people, they need and crave this kind of contact, so they seek it out in other much more deviant ways rather than being in healthy adult relationships. This study, however, makes it clear that celibacy isn't even a small consideration when dealing with sexual predators. In other words, there was found no connection between the celibate vows of priests and any tendency to abuse children. None. Okay, already we have some basic misconceptions being debunked by the John Jay study in regard to child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church, but there's still more to go, so bear with me while I continue to list out some of the major findings of the study. One of the biggest realizations made by the John Jay researchers was that less than 5% of priests who molested children could accurately be labeled by the psychiatric term pedophiles, according to how it's technically defined. This gets back to what you were saying, Jessica. Right. 
This makes the term pedophile priests a misleading one, as most of the priests who did engage in sexual abuse of children were not drawn to prepubescent children. Also, priests who were accused of child sexual abuse were no more likely to have personality or mood disorders. Also, of priests who did engage in residential treatment for sexual behavior in violation of their vows, 80% of them engaged in this behavior with other adults. So what you're saying is that most priests who got in trouble for engaging in sexual behavior, period, were actually engaging in sexual behavior with adults, not with children. Correct. Okay. So here is something that we could probably surmise. Priests who were found to be sexually abused themselves were more likely to continue this pattern of abuse by becoming abusers themselves. Also, priests specifically from cohorts that were from the 1940s and 1950s and who came from families that spoke negatively or not at all about sex entered the priesthood with intimacy problems and also seemed to be more likely to become abusers. Reporting changed a great deal over time as well. Prior to 1985, parents would generally confront clergy directly. By the 1990s, abuse was being reported by adults 10 to 20 years after the abuse occurred. And by the time the Boston Globe story was reported, reports of abuse was likely to be put out by attorneys for the abused, with many of the suits describing incidents that occurred 30 years prior. So, the John Jay study goes on to say that by 1985, Catholic bishops knew that sexual abuse by priests was a problem, but claimed that these bishops did not know the full scope of the problem. At the time, it was found by the researchers that bishops knew of only roughly 6% of the total abuse incidents that had occurred. Also, it was found that many times when abuse was reported, church leaders did respond to them, usually attempting in some way to, quote, rehabilitate the abuser. And I'll be the first to say that I have no idea what that means. However, there was little to no evidence that suggested that church leaders ever met with victims, but rather spent their time focused on abusers who, as we now know, they tried to treat in some way or who were moved around to other parishes. Okay, so as I stated before, when accusations of abuse were made, church leaders were likely to respond within the church, often avoiding involving law enforcement. This, of course, was problematic first and foremost due to a lack of transparency, but as the researchers make clear, this is very typical within religious institutions, and they go on to give examples of how a number of other religious organizations handle this, and how they often keep this kind of information within the organization. But to give you some numbers, the John Jay study reported that roughly 40% of priests who were accused of sexual abuse participated in some kind of treatment program, which included sex offender-specific treatment, spiritual counseling, psychotherapy, and what they also called general treatment programs. The church also reprimanded some abusers, put them on, on administrative leave, and also laicization, which is when a priest is removed as a member of the clergy. Okay, still with me? I'm still here. A lot of information I know, but as, as is often the case with formal research studies, it takes a minute to contextualize the information as part of the larger topic. So to get back to the original study, the Nature and Scope study, which was the first study, I wanted to drop some statistics in order to put the scandal into perspective. In the original study, which was a snapshot of the sexual abuse cases between 1950 and 2002, 4,392 priests were implicated. That seems like a lot. Yes. 
This, however, is out of 109,694 priests who served in ministry during that time. Ah, okay, now it seems like a lot less. Okay, this is obviously equivalent to roughly 4%. The vast majority of the victims, a full 81%, were male. This is an interesting fact that we'll come back to, as males tend to be the targets when the abuse takes place within an institution, whereas in the general public, females are much more likely, three times more likely, in fact, to be abused than males. One last statistic. 22% of the victims were under the age of 10, while the vast majority were pubescent or post-pubescent. In other words, they were generally older than originally thought. Oh, that's interesting. So in summary, the causes and context study, which again was the second study carried out by the John Jay School of Criminal Justice, stated the following. Few of the priest abusers exhibited serious pathological, developmental, or psychological characteristics or behaviors that could have led to their identification prior to their abusive acts. In other words, there was no way to predict this. The study found that priests that sexually abused minors were not statistically different than those who did not abuse minors in terms of psychological characteristics or intelligence, but were found to have, quote, vulnerabilities, intimacy deficits, and an absence of closer personal relationships before or after seminary, end quote. I'm not sure exactly how a number of these terms are defined, so there's that. Anyway... I would go into more specifics of the study, but in the interest of time, I just wanted to report the basics of what the John Jay School of Criminal Justice came up with. What I did want to also speak about, however, involves sexual abuse in other spiritual communities as well. I have spoken a great deal on this podcast about my undergraduate studies at Naropa University, which is a school founded in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. The founder of the school, Trungpa Rinpoche, also founded a more secular form of spiritual practice called Shambhala, which I also studied while in school there. Trungpa was a Tibetan Buddhist monk. Interestingly, a number of years after I graduated, my then-wife gifted me a curious little book she found on Amazon entitled The Great Naropa Poetry Wars by author Tom Clark. It was then that I was first introduced to just how controversial Trungpa Rinpoche actually was. The book is really about one singular incident that happened at a Halloween party that Trunkpa was at and how he allegedly got completely hammered and naked and forced a couple of partygoers, a man and his girlfriend, to strip in front of the rest of the party. When they refused, Trunkpa supposedly ordered some of his senior students to tear their clothes off of them and refused to call police even when the couple pleaded with the partiers to do so. That's basically the whole book. But once I started down this rabbit hole, a number of other stories about Trungpa Rinpoche also started to come out as well, including his sexual exploits and his insane amount of drinking. It's actually difficult to get first-hand accounts as Trungpa passed away in 1987, and those who did know him personally usually won't speak badly about him. But others made claims that he spent thousands of dollars every year on cocaine, he drunkenly crashed a car into a shop in England, and that he had been sleeping with women, many of whom were his students, since he was 13 years of age. So while he had a reputation, more information is known of his successors, such as Osel Tenzin, otherwise known as Thomas Frederick Rich Jr., who was Trungpa's principal student and took over as the first American holder of a Tibetan lineage. While Tenzin was highly controversial as well, he reportedly slept with students while he was knowingly HIV positive, one of whom was infected and actually died of AIDS. 
He himself died of AIDS in 1990. I read while doing this research that a number of his Buddhist followers still live in Ojai, California. Okay, the current holder of the lineage is Trungpa Rinpoche's son, who goes by a few names, but mostly Maifam Rinpoche. Well, he's no stranger to controversy for sexual misconduct, as he was also accused of assaulting numerous female students. This story was brought about by a former student of his named Andrea Wynn, who has since gone on to create the Buddhist Project Sunshine, which is an advocacy group of sorts for those who have suffered sexual abuse within the Buddhist community. To give you some reference point of how damaging these revelations were to the Shambhala Buddhist movement, author Pema Chodron, who is very well known and generally the American face of Shambhala Buddhism, stepped down from her role in the organization due to the sexual abuse coming to light. I didn't know this about Pema, but I will say that her leaving the Shambhala organization is a huge deal as she has been its most recognizable face. That's from an article published in the Washington Post in January of 2020 by Michelle Borstein. So where am I going with all of this? As I continued to do research into this topic, that of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, I started looking into how sexual predation has also affected other spiritual communities as well, just to draw some kind of parallel. Another article published in October of 2019, written by Sanisuda Akachai for the Bangkok Post, goes into some detail about the abuse of young boys in Thailand while studying under older monks. These young boys are often far away from home or even orphans and become novices within Buddhist temples as a way to seek the help they need within a spiritual community. In July of 2011, the Chicago Tribune published a report of Theravada Buddhist monks who sexually assaulted children in Illinois, Texas, and California, and when they were reported, were simply moved to a different area. Apparently, even the Dalai Lama has intervened due to these scandals and is known of the problem of child sexual abuse within Tibetan Buddhist communities since the 1990s. And we can keep going with this. If you dig long enough, it's almost as if no spiritual community is immune to this kind of abuse of power. Obviously, sexual abuse is not limited to cults, but exists a great deal in mainstream religions as well. So what to say about this then? I know I've spent most of this episode relaying information rather than putting forth a possible explanation. Well, the truth is, I really don't have one. It seems to me that often is the case that spiritual accomplishment and realizations continue to take a backseat to much more base desires of humans, including power over others, even as it's expressed sexually. I talk a lot on this podcast about the importance of shadow work, or the acknowledgement and work done with one's shadow dimensions, or their dark side, so to speak, which is the only way to manage and control it. Historically, it seems that many religions have never really gotten this message. When so many religions preach light all the time, I ask myself, where is the darkness? Because there is never one without the other. When I see a lot of light in any organization, I have to ask myself, where is the darkness they are trying so desperately to cover up? Because it is there, lurking in the background somewhere, being expressed covertly until it's finally exposed. Whenever a child is abused, they are being robbed of something that they absolutely need to grow and thrive. I've read in many places that sexual abuse can be the most insidious form of abuse because it robs children of their innocence, which is something that they can never get back. It really makes me stop and think and feel for those who have suffered at the hands of spiritual leaders, or at the hands of anyone for that matter. 
People are attracted to institutions that promise to give us light or to somehow take our human suffering away. So many, it seems, use the pursuit of spirit as a way to flee their darkness rather than confront it. When the darkness is not acknowledged, it goes underground and turns into something much more malevolent. To me, this is one of the most basic human issues we face, and it seems to destroy people regardless of their spiritual achievements. Anyway, the topic of the psychology of spirituality, including some of the pitfalls, will most likely be a future topic, so I'll leave it there for now. I will end this by saying that my heart really goes out to all of the victims of abuse. Researching this topic has definitely given me more insight into just how much suffering these victims go through in the pursuit of spiritual ends. And I absolutely echo that, David. You know, I, I kind of alluded to that earlier as well, that child sexual abuse is one of the worst things, right, that that we can even imagine. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, there were so many victims in this particular case that really didn't get their voice until decades later. And, um, and I think that that is very unfortunate that they weren't listened to at the time. But I, I am glad that the church has made changes and that this is something that people really are paying more attention to. Right. I think it's probably still underreported, but I hope that we're making progress in the right direction. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that it will probably continue to be underreported, but it is being reported more now, which seems to be what has deterred it the most. Yeah. Is that it, it, it that nowadays it will most likely get reported to law enforcement as opposed to being covered up within an institution. Well, and I think also there's been some changes to the laws so that, you know, a lot of states have done away with the statute of limitations on child sexual abuse. Right. So that because they know that people often don't come forward until they're adults and that allows them to still prosecute those cases, which I think is very important. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a fascinating topic. So thank you again to our patrons for choosing it. David, it's been a really great season. And as always, we are humbled by all of the support we've received from all of our listeners. We'll actually be joining some of our patrons for a live Q&A session now that the season is over, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, I think that will be fun. We're also going to be releasing some exclusive content on Patreon during the break, as I mentioned. And we're also going to be doing some collaborations with some other folks uh, for some bonus content. Right, David? Yeah, that's right. Looking forward to that as well. And if you all want to reach out to us during the break with some topics you'd like to hear in Season 5, you can do that on our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at psychologyafterdark, and you can send us a message from there as well. And please do check out our website. We'll have some links to some of the things we discussed in this episode on the discussion page. And we also have our merchandise page where you can pick up some Psychology After Dark gear for the holidays. So happy holidays to all of our listeners. Please stay healthy and safe. And David will be back in the new year with season five. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. 
If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Jamendo.